Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to episode 32 of Concussion Chats. My name is Taya. Concussion Chats is a podcast hosted by the McGill Students for the Concussion Legacy Foundation with the help of Nick from Concussion Talk Podcast. We are dedicated to providing strength and hope to those recovering from concussions through sharing experiences. Today I have a recording of our guest speaker, Chinna. Um, so Chinna is a school psychologist in Los Angeles, California, and since recovering from a subdural, subdural hematoma in 2019, he began competing on American Ninja Warrior with the intention of sharing hope for the for other survivors' um, recoveries. You know, somehow I'm I'm two years out from my injury, and I've made peer support a big priority in. Um, my attempts to kind of I just put messages out um but this is actually my first TBI support group so bear with me if I uh get a little emotional because I've been waiting for this for a pretty long time um so for some background to uh the kind of life that I was living before I got hurt um I was a school psychologist I still am um, in 2019, I was a hobby boxer as well. Um, so there is your answer for how I came to be in this support group. Um, I was a hobby boxer though. So I was never taking fights, um, just for fun, maybe helping some other guys get ready for their fights. Um, but in January 2019, I uh, went in for a spar. It was a harder, it was a hard spar, but nothing particularly notable about it. Um, There was a, if I had to point to one punch that might've done it, there was a a brief moment of ring out with my sparring partner where I was outside of, you know, out of bounds. I looked away for a moment to say something to somebody else. And during that time, my sparring partner uh, teed off. And they say in boxing or really any, any sport, it's the hit that you don't see coming that can do the most damage. Your body has a way of bracing itself and tensing up. Even if you're not consciously preparing to get hit, there's just little things you do to protect yourself. And there was one punch that day that I didn't see coming. Um, but even still, 
there was no knockout. There wasn't even a knockdown, no loss of equilibrium. I had conversations with people in the boxing club afterwards. Um, I drove home. I talked to, she was my girlfriend at the time. She's my wife now, but I had a conversation with her. Um, got in the shower and about 90 minutes after the spar had ended, I started to realize something was happening neurologically. I was seeing dark circles out of both of my eyes and I was like, okay, something is wrong. And by the time I had finished the shower, I threw up. And that's when I knew, you know, if you ever get hit in the head and you throw up, you have to go to a hospital. But by the time I was really convinced of that, things were shutting down um, very quickly. So what was happening inside was I had this subdural hematoma, this uh, brain bleed. Um, and sometimes a subdural hematoma can resolve itself. Uh, I heard later on down the line of my recovery that the same injury in a sedentary 80 year old man might've been less devastating than it was for me. Um, part of the explanation for that is um, me with my young brain and like higher volume of gray matter had less space for my brain to move around inside my skull. And so there was less room to accommodate the intracranial pressure that was building. So there's this bleed going on in my brain. I've just gotten out of the shower and thrown up. And now I'm paralyzed on the left side of my body. And I've lost the ability to speak. And I'm coming in and out of consciousness very quickly. This all spiraled within a matter of minutes. And since I can't talk and my wife is in the other room on a work call, um, I managed to get her attention by thrashing on the floor loudly enough that she came and checked on me. And she's like, okay, well, got to call for an ambulance. Um, when the ambulance got me, um, between my wife and I, we were able to communicate like he was boxing, he was taking blows to the head, but it's pretty chaotic. Uh, when you're being loaded up into an ambulance by EMTs, they, they told me that you're not taking in enough oxygen, so you're going to be intubated. And that's basically the last thing that I remembered for a few hours. But it turns out, uh, as I had been put under, that the EMTs were routing me to the closest hospital uh, when one heads-up technician noticed um, was taking the information a little bit better than the others and was like, Hey, this guy was taking blows to the head. He has neurotrauma. And there's only one hospital in Los Angeles that treats neurotrauma. That's UCLA. So we actually shouldn't be taking him to this place. Let's change route and go to UCLA. Uh, and in a situation where every second counted towards life or death or the extent of impairment, that decision was huge. So that was one of several miracles for me that day. After being intubated, I came to um, briefly in a room full of people and they all shouted, don't move, don't move. You have a brain bleed. You're in the scanner right now. And so that was enough time for me to register one thought, which is that my life is going to be different. I have brain damage. And then they put me back under. And then in the span of between like 14 and 16 ish hours later, my next memory is opening my eyes to a room full of nurses screaming, don't move, don't move. You've had brain surgery. There's no bone. And I didn't know what that meant, but what had happened was um, I had emergency neurosurgery and this 
basically half of my skull had been removed. It's called a decompressive hemicraniectomy. So my brain needed space to swell and accommodate that pressure. So they took the top off, they attached a drain to the back of my skull to help relieve some of that intracranial pressure. And suddenly that was my new life. So um, I, I was panicked, of course. I didn't really know at the time what there's no bone meant. Um, but I was a school psychologist and I have worked with kids with traumatic brain injuries for my entire career and I've seen just how devastating they can be. I've worked with kids who have lost their vision from brain injuries, um, who have become paralyzed. And I've seen these outcomes and all I really knew at the time was that I had, I had one. And so the nurses in my like panic and, and lots of crying managed to communicate like, well, hey, wait a minute. Um, your wife, her name is Erica, right? And your parents, they're from Chicago, right? Well, your wife is here, she's waiting to see you. Your parents, they're gonna, they're gonna fly out and they're gonna be with you too. And at first, they, that caused even more panic. I was like, yes, I recognize that name, but I don't know if I'm gonna recognize this face that's gonna come into this ICU. But when she did and I knew who she was, I don't think I'll ever experience greater relief than that moment um, to just feel like, okay, I, I know life's going to be different, but at least I've, I've still got the people. Um, and she came and she, she said, Hey, you made it. And then that was also the first time that the thought had occurred to me that I very nearly didn't make it. Um, I just expected that I was going to open my eyes and, live and be awake not really uh didn't know what the survival rates were for an acute subdural hematoma at the time but if you were to google it um one of the first results that comes up is actually from ucla and they the hospital that treated me and they'll tell you that the survival rates are uh well the mortality rate is between 50 and 90 percent so not very many people live of those who do live, approximately 20 to 30% regain any amount of brain function. The most likely outcomes by quite a bit are either death or persistent vegetative state or cognitive impairment, language impairment, motor impairment, like pretty, um, pretty dark outcomes. I, I kind of waited until I was in a, in a psychologically better place to figure out what those outcomes were. And I, I wonder if maybe not knowing that stuff in the early stages was a good thing for me. Um, but anyways, so here I am in the hospital. Um, my wife and my parents are with me and I'm paralyzed on the left side of my body because the bleed was on the right side. I have horrible nerve pain in both of my legs. I can't really move from the waist down. And all of those brainstem functions uh, have left me because the bleed was so bad that I herniated. Um, this is another thing that I'm glad I didn't know at the time. Apparently cranial herniation basically means the patient is dead and it's time to see someone else. Um, my brainstem had compressed into my spinal cord so much that 
I had five millimeter midline shift. Um, it's, it's very unlikely in cases like that to return to equilibrium. And so I thought this is, this is my life now. Like as, as much as it might seem romanticized to like have never lost hope and to have only thought positively. I think anybody who's been through it will tell you that's just not how it works. Or it certainly wasn't my experience. Um, and for a while, I just, I believed that this broken body and mind is what my life will be. I was only awake for maybe 30 minutes a day in the early stages. And it's hard to see much progress when you're only awake for 30 minutes. And those 30 minutes are also spent being kind of incoherent. I, uh, I just wasn't with it. I wasn't myself. And of course, part of that is being super doped up from what they need to give me to stay alive. But another part of it is the brain damage. So by the time I was discharged from my initial hospitalization about a week later, um, I still couldn't really walk. I was a fall risk. I had to wear a helmet at all times because the section of my skull had been removed. I was liable to fall asleep, pass out at any moment. I was having uh, what was suspected to be focal seizures where I would have like this tingling in the left side of my body and lose motor control. And at times my face would droop and it looked like I was having a stroke. Um, I was starting over from the very beginning, constantly motion sick. I couldn't look at anything. Any, any light was too much. Sunlight screens were completely out of the question. Uh, riding in a car, I couldn't do that without having one of those focal seizures or having motion sickness and throwing up. Uh, all my vestibular stuff was just gone. Um, and that was really when it, when it all finally hit me after initially being discharged was uh, oddly enough taking my first shower when I went and uh, sat in my shower chair and my wife bathed me and I just like fell apart and really, really barely able to get a word out, but ruminating on this thought and repeatedly saying like, I used to be the opposite of this. I used to be self-sufficient. I provide for our family with my mind. My body was strong and relatively coordinated. And here I am not even able to bathe myself. And I just, that was like the first time that I really practiced accepting my new reality for the day and not knowing what outcome I might have, but at least, setting the intention to try and get better at, at something the following day. And that's really what recovery was for me, just basically constant frustration and failure, but accepting that and then saying, all right, well, tomorrow, let's try and get a little bit better at just something, like one thing, the most minor of things even if that's just being awake for five minutes longer than I was yesterday or um, like having enough 
visual control to like look out a window without getting vertigo. Um, it was starting very, very small. Um, but that was oddly enough, like kind of the most peace that I found during the process was like celebrating these really seemingly minor things with my family. Um, we found something to celebrate every day, despite living in kind of a nightmare. Even if it wasn't any progress that I made, I made a point to say how grateful I was that I got to spend this time with my parents. How often is it that both of my parents and my girlfriend are gonna live in a one bedroom apartment together in Los Angeles without wanting to tear each other apart. And like, we were good to each other. And we, um, we were all on board with like finding something to be grateful for. And this practice of gratitude, um, I think that's the reason that things went the way that they did for me. Like I just kept looking for, looking for something. I didn't need to, figure I didn't need to spell out the ways that my life was really hard at the time like that was very obvious to anybody that would look at me and now here I am without coordination and half of my skull is in a freezer some kind of grotesque and nobody wants to look at me and like things are things are very obviously wrong but I don't need a reminder of that I needed reminders of what was right and how grateful I am to just be alive, to open my eyes and see my family, to actually be making a little progress, to be able to walk um, slowly, but surely um, to have the opportunity to do rehab. Um, rehab was really um, an interesting experience for me. So, um, I'm grateful that I was able to do outpatient rehab. Um, I, they determined in the hospital that my level of acuity was low enough that I could be discharged to home. I wasn't a danger to myself. Um, I was given like a brief cognitive assessment. And one of the things that stands out to me from that was this speech and language pathologist administering this test. And one of the questions was, what profession do you think makes the most money in the world? And I said, whatever Jeff Bezos does. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, wait, is this like that Beatles movie where that Indian guy gets hit in the head and nobody knows who the Beatles are anymore? Like, is what what's happening? Am I the one who's completely out of touch now, but no, it turns out that speech path just uh, was not very in touch with current events. So um, that was the test that determined that I was safe to go home. Um, and I did outpatient occupational therapy and physical therapy. And the first time that I went in, I was, I was in really rough shape. This is when I still had uh, constant motion sickness. I couldn't control the use of my eyes. I was constantly wobbling, felt like I would fall over at any moment if I was left standing by myself. And um, it was really in the first session where this physical therapist, without even needing to be very hands-on, was just like, okay, we're going to teach you how to use your eyes again and how to connect what you're seeing with what your body is doing. And we just practiced looking from one side of a room to another and naming the things that I saw. And it, it was like these little things that when you're an adult, you don't have to think about, 
identifying and slowly deliberately naming the things in your field as you scan because your brain is just doing it but that was the level that I was at to start over and it was so simple but it clicked and that's exactly what I needed and this is the part of the recovery that is kind of it, it's it's weird to talk about to other survivors because it wasn't like this for everyone and honestly there's some degree of guilt and I don't understand why it was this way for me but once I figured that out with my vision you know, like two three sessions of rehab later they told me there was nothing that they could work on with me that I wasn't already doing for myself um I I really worked hard at rehab while I was at home and I was surrounded by people who believed in me and challenged me to do more and allowed me to take some risks that a lot of other patients who had just had a hemicraniectomy wouldn't normally take. Um, like as I was building my stamina up again, and this is LA, so we live close to the beach. We would walk to the beach, my entire family, uh, and I would get to the point of the sand and say, no, I can't do that. Walking in sand is too scary. I don't have the balance for it. But because I was surrounded by people who believed I could do more and, and challenged me, and actually they were able to encourage me to walk on sand and they were, they put their arms out to catch me. And luckily I didn't need it. And once I took those first few steps, all those other motor skills fell into place. And that was the point in the recovery where I, I started kind of like, like posting on social media about like, here's what I'm going through. And like, I'm kind of reaching out for support because this is a really lonely experience and I want to show people that I'm okay, even if I'm not okay. But either way, like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of reaching out. And at that point, once I was able to walk on the sand, I started um, being able to do some hand-eye coordination things, like kind of boxing-like things that um, a lot of people, brain injury or not, are not able to do. And I was doing them with half of my skull in a freezer. So... Uh, some of these social media posts gained traction. And before I knew it, uh, without ever having really been in uh, peer support the way that I wanted to be myself, I found myself in a position where other survivors were like reaching out and I got to be that support to them. So in that way, I kind of got things backwards. I'm like super stoked to be with you guys today and like actually be in my first peer support group. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, um, once the rehab started going well, that, um, coincided with what was happening physically with my brain, like the swelling was going down a lot faster than a lot of other survivors, uh, swelling does like oftentimes that skull flap gets either thrown out because the patient doesn't make it or they're waiting a year or multiple years to reattach it. But in my case, it was reattached. So initially injury was January and the cranioplasty to put the bone back on was in March. So it was, it was very quick. Um, what, what was easy to lose sight of with how quickly that went was that like, even though my motor skills are clearly okay, brain injuries are not just motor skills. Um, and once the bone was put back on for a little bit, I thought like, wow, I'm, I'm me again. I'm, the person who 
I was before the injury is still here. Like I, I'm good. I'm on the other side of it. Cause in the back of my mind what has always been floating around was um, while I was having surgery, doctors were telling my wife, well, he's probably going to die. And then, okay, he's going to live, but we don't know if he'll wake up. And then if he wakes up, he's not going to be the same person that he was before. And to this day that, those words still float around in my mind and trusting myself is uh, something that I'm continuing to work on. But I've kind of thrown myself into the deep with it in like a very sink or swim way where like I went back to work and being a school psychologist involves a lot of uh, like organizational skills and attention and uh, you have to be able to multitask and doing psychoeducational evaluations involves a lot of knowledge of theory and stuff, but you know, there I was doing it. I went back to work uh, within a few months of the initial injury and was fulfilling the responsibilities of my job. Um, Just not fully in tune with like the parts of me that were still healing. I still had these affective things like, depression that I was managing before I got hurt, but depressive thoughts became tougher to deal with after the injury or like anger. I, I tried real hard to, you know, in my mind, this injury happened as like, like I did it to myself, even though another person was involved, there was this, like, I can't believe I could be this horrible to myself that I sustained this brain injury from boxing and I had all this anger and it would come out in these horrible, really toxic ways. And it it took me a while to realize that like, I need to go and talk to professionals about this. And that was a journey too, getting started with a therapist who really understood what a brain injury this severe could be like. Um, And then the way that I present can be pretty articulate and level-headed sometimes. So coming into an office and talking about these, these like really challenging things sometimes felt like it wasn't being taken seriously. Um, It's kind of, I've heard brain injuries talked about as the silent injury, the silent epidemic before, and it really resonates because we can all look like we're doing great, but it's not the case. And especially for me, like, I think I've talked about guilt a couple of times now, and I have a lot of guilt over, like, it's not, I, I don't present the same way as a lot of other survivors. And like, here I am on this tv show doing like feats of athleticism that most people brain injury or not can't do and it feels weird to like still be like to to say i'm still healing i'm still recovering i'll always be recovering i'm never going to be over this this is going to be part of me until the day that i die and i think about it every minute of every day and even if it's not the physical consequences of brain injury it's like the psychological trauma 
I am going to be healing for the rest of my life. But I also think because of the way that I present, I'm in like a very fortunate position to be able to like, hopefully share a little bit of hope to people that are going through it. Like my whole thing is trying to be the person that I needed to see when I was in the worst of it and who I needed to see was somebody who could have a job, a family, a relationship, and maybe even have some hobbies like being able to use their body. Um, and that's like the standard that I hold myself to, but it's at times, maybe not the healthiest thing. For somebody who's still healing like we have to be kind to ourselves and understand that like we're we might look just like everyone else we might be able to act just like everyone else sometimes but like we're not honor that and honoring that doesn't mean being less than or or any sort of like there's no value judgment attached to being different and that's like that's where I'm trying to come to come at this from. So I feel like that was a little bit more uh, roundabout than the way that I normally tell this story, but um, it's different to be talking to a group of people who have gone through it themselves. Like I, uh, I've gotten involved in some, thanks Wendy. Um, I've gotten involved with some, peer support advocacy type groups uh, through UCLA that aren't actually peer support, but trying to make, make support groups more accessible to other patients and families. You know, we call ourselves the Patient Family Advisory Council. And um, while I love doing that, and I'm gonna be talking about this cause and advocating for it as much as I can, I only found that because I was trying to find a support group for myself and I just kind of accidentally ended up in this place. Um, I think it's important for people who have been through what we've been through to talk about it. I think y'all had a speaker recently because uh, I was listening to some of these podcasts, getting caught up and uh, getting a feel for how you guys run your groups. And somebody recently said, I think it's important for us to talk about our experiences because you never know who out there might really benefit from hearing it and there's such a stigma attached to this particular injury where talking about it's gonna it could lead people to question our you know cognitive abilities our judgment um any number of things and this stigma makes it so much more isolating for us when we're really in the worst of it and i think what that person said before about talking about what it is that we've dealt with for the sake of the next person is like so huge when it comes to recovery and support and awareness. So, uh, I mean, that's, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing and why you guys, some of you are also doing the same thing. Um, it's just, it's important to be there for each other, like brain injury or not. Today I have Emily, who is also part of McGill Students for the Concussion Legacy Foundation, uh, Nick from Concussion Talk Podcast, and his co-host Aaron, who is also the coordinator for the Newfoundland and Labrador Brain Injury Association, joining me. Um, so Trina Share was 
great. Everyone um, really enjoyed it and uh, was just like, so like inspired and like moved by it. Um, and I mean, myself included, it was a crazy story and it's awesome that he's where he's at. Um, and yeah. I, I like I couldn't like at, once he finished his share I like the first thing I said was like four people lived in a one-bedroom apartment and didn't kill each other like that's insane <laughs> um yeah that was one of the first things that came out of my mouth um because that really stuck with me but um how big is that apartment though this is one bedroom and it's not a huge bedroom and of course one bedroom maybe you just how many rooms could have been in so given like five different rooms, but you put a bed one room, so it's one bedroom. But that's not really different. I mean, uh, yeah. But I thought it was good too. Um, yeah, he explained yeah. it of his and stuff. So it was also really cool how um he brought up how peer support has been um something that he's been really involved in in the sense that like people would reach out to him um through like his social media posts and he said this was his first time attending a support group um does not like be back or will he be back yeah. will he be back if he wants to yeah but you didn't, didn't say oh i'll come to this one all the time now you just kind of said like she's here to say that one i don't know We'll see. When are you good? <laughs> yeah. I'm feeling heavy today, but I'm good. I really enjoyed um, how he, um, and I was just stretching my neck. Um, yeah, Trevor, I really no one could see what you were doing. Um, just yeah. Um, I really enjoyed how he was um, talking about gratitude but he wasn't minimizing what was going on I think that's a tough thing to find he was just kind of right-sizing you know yeah that was one of the, did a good job yeah one of the things that stuck out to me is when he said like honoring your differences and being true to your authentic self in that sense of like being thankful for the peaceful moments and the small wins but also not minimizing like what has actually happened to you well just definitely a big thing and a hard thing to do um but yeah it was um it was also cool how he just like his thing was like he wanted to get better at something every day and it wasn't like he didn't um expect himself to just miraculously get better like the next day or something it was like he like wanted like small things and was able to um, go with that and uh something um, he also said um, when he was talking about um, like gratitude and accepting things and stuff, he said something, no value judgment. Um, and that was when he was talking about like different, it's just different and that's okay and stuff. And I don't know, I really liked the no value judgment sentence. Mm. Yeah, I, uh, I found like all that part's just so very inspirational in that kind of sense and like the small wins and everything he was really speaking about that from the physical perspective and a lot of the beginning of his story followed that timeline of all these physical like symptoms and everything but then he made that pivot where he was like yeah once that stuff was kind of fine like quotations around fine 
And he then like focused around the mental part. And I was like, ah, yes, Neg, you've made the full circle, like the full like encompassing of your recovery. But he followed like the timeline of it so well, because I find with like concussions, brain injuries, all of that, it'll be like physical, 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 like what are your symptoms? Let's fix those. Let's look at those rehab. It's all for that. But then you get into like the mental health side of it, which is so big. Yeah, yeah. I thought, sorry, Tia. Go ahead. Uh, I just like how relatable it is that he was like, and they, you know, put the bone back in place and, and I was good. And I thought, you know what, I'm back yeah. to myself, how I was before. Like I am how... whole again, like yeah. quite yeah. literally. <laughs> yeah. And then being like, well, part of you is, you know? And how common I think that is, is, um, is like, we're like, all right, this is it. This is when, you know, we're back to normal, back to who we were. And there's, you know, another step of growth that has to happen, but how he like still continued that growth. Yeah. You know, he, and didn't, like, he didn't stop. He kept going. His difficulty in finding a therapist too, who is specialized in brain injury and mm-hmm. like, that reminded me of like the beginning when he was talking about even when he was just in the ambulance going to the hospital where only one person in yeah. the ambulance had training and I was like training is so important <laughs> like it just drove yeah. it home remember that there was like only one hospital in their area like they needed to reroute um and yeah that kind of just shows like how hard it is to find the proper treatment for a brain injury mm. um yeah and, and then when he was just talking about like the psychological aspects of like his recovery and stuff, and when he was talking about like the depression, the anger, um, and then he was also talking about guilt because he doesn't present the same way as other people with brain injuries. And um, a couple of times, I think during our discussion, he even said like, you know, like there's some things like I still kind of deal with that. Like I would never complain about to another brain and like another person with a brain injury because it's stuff like, you know, like um, it it had to do with his American Ninja Warrior training kind of thing. And so it's, so it's obviously not something that everyone can relate to, but like, and then when like kind of look at like the full picture, um, it's just like small things um, and uh, I liked that he also kind of talked about how like it feels weird to say like he's still recovering um, and that he will always kind of be recovering. Um, and I think that's a big thing too, just because like everyone thinks like you're like once you're recovered, like you're done dealing with it. But PCS clearly like <laughs> that's not what's happening. Like that's not the case. And um, yeah. And someone asked during our discussion about, um, or they brought up how, um, like PCS is just not really like viewed as like a real thing. And, um, and then they asked kind of from like his perspective as like a, um, school psychologist or whatever. And he brought up how like he had dealt with like kids with brain injuries and stuff. And so like, he's seen it, but um, then he like really stressed that like PCS is real. Like it is so very real. Um, And he brought up how like, it's tough to like kind of explain it and stuff. And, but talking about these things is like how we start to address it and like make it more known and people aware of it. 
Yeah, I wrote down in my notes too about that, like the trauma is forever kind of thing. And I was like, that sounds like such a brutal sentence to read, but the way he said it sounded so like accepting and good in a way. Like, so I don't know. I told a lot about him to me, I guess, and like where he is in his journey with that. And that was nice, like nice to hear someone say it so warmly, I guess. Mm -hmm. When was his injury again? Uh, early 2019. Okay. Yeah. So, so he's coming on the way. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a very short time, too. Um, and also, just thinking about the statistics that he was saying, that's crazy. Um, and just like, wow, uh, it's insane. Um, and then something else he brought up, I don't know if it was in the recording or not. Um, but he was talking about how, like, it's important for us to, like, talk about our experiences because, like, you don't know who will benefit from it. Um, and uh, you touched on super true. Was that in the recording or was something okay. like that was in the recording? Because he, yeah, he was talking about how, you know, like, it's so important to, like, share our experiences. And, um, and then in our discussion, we kind of talked about how, like, that, like, that's, like, the goal of the podcast, you know, like, have people's stories and, um, and we've gotten like a couple emails um, before of people being like, you know, like the podcast really um, has helped. And um, even talking to people in some of the support groups, they said that like they've gone back and we listened to episodes that really helped them and stuff. So, I mean, that's the goal. And he's super right. Yeah. I think um, <clears throat> going back to what you're talking about a minute ago, Taya, um, him talking about the guilt of not presenting like other people with TBI. Um, I think that's a really important concept. Um, and like one of the things that I think we've gotten to see in the support group is people share completely different stories, yet they're able to kind of, they focus on the similarities and not the differences. Um, yeah. And that's part of, I think the support community is acknowledging that different people are on different parts of their journeys but we can still learn from them. Um, and to like, uh, that totally rests into what you were just saying, is <laughs> to share your experience, even if, um, or share your experience because you don't know who's also on that same part of their journey, or they might be on a completely different part and they're just, they're so willing to learn something that they're able to, even if it is a completely different, you know, experience and i think another important thing about that is not to assume just because you're like you've committed through something that someone else has been there you're a different part of your of your journey but uh just not to assume that they will get the they will they'll feel all the things you felt and like mm -hmm. just 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 because to say you were say you had a couple you had trouble headaches and stuff and now your headaches are gone but now but so your mind is able to focus on different on things you're not as depressed or anxious as you should be, but maybe the person is never depressed or anxious, and maybe that's not going to be that's not part of their journey. And not to assume that they will necessarily get to that part where they're going to be feeling like something. Yeah, like. it's just like different for everyone. And yeah. um, someone asked kind of like what helps with like what helped him with like dealing with guilt and dealing with the stigma and stuff. And, yeah, um, he said like he does have moments where like. It, he really gets weighed down by it and like you know people don't get it and 
um he said like he just kind of like talks back to it by like being like to hell with you like um I'm my own thing this happened to me people around me might not get it um I need to do what's right for me and he said he doesn't hide from what happened um and if the people around like if people aren't going to accept or reflect on what happened like it's their loss like he's and then and then that's when he brought up again like the no value judgment different is just different and that's totally okay um and I think that's yeah it, yeah uh, one last thing that we talked about also was his training for American Ninja Warrior um we were talking about just kind of like how do you like limit yourself like pacing yourself like um and he said uh something about he can't willpower like himself through this like um like he used to like he used to willpower himself through everything um and like this is something where like he can't like he needs to stop at a certain point or he could have um or he could like pass out and hit his head or something like you know like he has to take it serious like he doesn't have a choice um and uh we all just kind of like talked about like the whole like pacing ourselves and like listening to our body and kind of like you know like all that stuff because that's hard um and just kind of like how like now like he doesn't have a choice or else who knows what may happen kind of thing yeah um, I, I feel the same way but the pacing is tough is yeah you run out of, the thing is you don't have anything everything in energy you lose options and uh you don't have the option to just you know Got through it and just like set it up. No, with this lap, this thing, this time will be bit or something more difficult or whatever. But you just probably physically shouldn't can't do it. Like it's not just like you shouldn't do it. Not someone outside saying you should not do that. Yeah, like it, it, it it's just unsafe. It's like if you push too hard, yeah, um, yeah. things could happen, which are not like it's not worth that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, like, um, like I'm going to spend time running, and I know that like, I I know that I'll be able, I want to I want I know how far I want to go, and it, and the thing is that I problems with just seeing how far I can push it, and I know that people will probably say, oh, you know, that's that's done now, um, and they're probably right, but I just I've been to it and I just go and then get some get far enough, and I'm like, I have to stop now for like five minutes or, you know, and just rest or just, or just, and then if I do go through just to make it the end, then the next few days I'll feel like just exhausted and just use it actually is. So, yeah. Yeah. Pacing's tough. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. It's <laughs> like, it's like a never-ending battle. Um, and yeah like knowing your limit and like listening to like that limit um and actually yeah like respecting it that is like the hardest thing um but his i i really enjoyed his share and the whole support group was um they all really enjoyed it too and um i sent the group like a a link to like his story for american ninja warrior and it was crazy it was really cool as you, you send that link and I'll put it in the, in the description of this podcast. Okay. I will see what I can 
I will, I think I posted on Facebook, so I'll send it to you. So, oh, nice. so this Sunday, um, June 27th at 10 a.m. Eastern time, we are having um, our uh, final book club meeting for the Ghost in My Brain, um, our discussion meeting. And then we are also going to be introducing our second book, um, To Root and To Rise. Um, and yeah, so... If you weren't there for the first book, come to the second one. Um, this book's also got a little workbook in it too, which is super cool. Um, so thanks again, Chinna, for um, joining us and talking to the um, support group and sharing your story. Everyone really enjoyed it. Um, thanks, Nick, for helping us with the podcast. Uh, we'll have a new podcast posted Monday morning. Our upcoming podcast can be found on concussiontalk.com, Spotify, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts. You can find more information about our group on concussionmtl.com. Our free peer-to-peer run support group is open to everyone, and we hold four weekly meetings on Zoom, and we're always looking for more Thursday morning speakers. Thanks for listening. HeadCheck Health bridges gaps in concussion care through simple, powerful technology. Join organizations like the Canadian Football League, Trek Factory Racing, the Canadian Junior Hockey League, Eastern Washington University and Volleyball Canada who rely on HeadCheck to improve communication and optimize care. Visit headcheckhealth.com for more. The music at the beginning of this podcast is by Ben Sound, www.bensound.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.